Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Clever, your host, and with me today, Caleb Wells. Hey, y'all. How's it hey, going? Hey, y'all. Hey, how was Mardi Gras? It's, it's been a little while, but it was... It didn't happen. It did not happen yeah. this year. There was yeah. there was no Mardi Gras. I mean, I think some people still went out to the bars and got drunk and whatnot, but no, there was no Mardi Gras this year. Next year. They, didn't Next they do year. something else about like people's houses they were decorating and... Instead of the floats, uh, yeah. houses? Yeah, actually, some people uh, decorated their houses to kind of look like floats, or they did a theme based on a crew that they're part of. So there was that. And City Park here in New Orleans, it's huge. It's bigger than most most parks in any city. I mean, like if you uh, think of Central Park in New York, it's three times the size of that. Wow. Anyway, a bunch of the crews actually donated their floats that were supposed to be used this year to the park and you could do a drive-through tour. So, um, so we did do that. So, you know, oh. we're, we, we made it work, right? All right. So it's like Christmas light drive-through, but floats. Yep. Yep. <laughs> cool. Yep. Cool. Yeah. All right. We also got Wai Lu. Hey guys. How you doing? Hey, Wai. Hey. It's been a little while, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm miss you guys, actually. <laughs> How's your weather? You know, we're, we're warming up. You're cooling down. Yeah, it's getting a bit cold. We've got some floods um, around, not near where I am, but kind of a few hours away. So, yeah. All right. All right. Hope everything's all right. Yeah. It's not as bad as bushfires, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, right. It, That's good. It's one extreme or the other, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, it's crazy world. Uh, yeah. Yep. Our guest today is Baskar Danlamudi. Welcome, Baskar. Yeah, hi, Sean. Thanks for having me today. Oh, glad to have you on the show. So uh, to start us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, how you got into development and and what you do and, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. So I started uh, my development career around uh, 2007. I passed out of my college and right after that, I started with an Indian uh, software consulting company called Tata Consultancy Services. And from there, I then traveled to U.S., and uh, over here, I was working at Cardinal Health and other assignments. And later, I'm now working as an independent consultant. And most of my work is all .NET, front-end related activities, and JavaScript. And I also do some uh, technical speaking. And through that, I also had some interest with user group meetups and started my own meetup and ended up uh, creating an uh, own conference called JavaScript and Friends over here in Columbus, Ohio. So when I'm not developing or doing work, it will be mostly user group activities. So that's the uh, intro about me. So you're in Ohio now? Yeah, I'm based out of Ohio now. Oh, nice. Nice. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. So how'd you get into .NET? 
So right from the start of my career, I was basically trained in .NET when I joined TCS. So that's how .NET got attached to me. And from there, it's a never-ending journey. And till now, I'm some somehow associated with .NET in one way or other. So earlier, we used to have ASP and ASP.NET and all those front-end stuff. But later now, I mostly use it for all the middleware, uh, like the services parts and taking care of all the business logics, uh, which we develop using .NET services, either through web services or ASMX. I still remember all those stuff, the WCF services. And then right now we are in the REST land, which is uh, the API world. So somehow related to .NET in one way or other. Awesome. Awesome. So I think our topic for today is going to be uh, GraphQL using .NET. I take it you've, you've worked with that quite a bit? So not as a production application, but I started to go, get interested into GraphQL when uh, my association with the JavaScript world, I started to see GraphQL get increased adoption in JavaScript side. So that's where as a .NET developer, I wanted to see like, okay, what is the state of GraphQL currently in the .NET world? So that's how I started to see some packages which were out there, NuGet packages. Earlier to start with, it was the GraphQL.NET and I think Chris Noring, uh, he also wrote an article in Dev2, like how you can use uh, GraphQL.net. And he had a few articles out there. So that had sparked an interest in me to see like, okay, let me do some talks around GraphQL and see like how we can use it in .NET world. So that's how I started to explore GraphQL in terms of how you can how we can use it for uh, .NET applications. So for our yeah, listeners... Yeah, for our listeners that might not be familiar with GraphQL, can you say, you know, what is it and what does it do? And, you know, what is the state of it in .NET? Yeah. So in GraphQL, so if you are not aware, GraphQL is basically like uh, we will get, or as a developer, I will decide what are all the results that I want from my API. So in current traditional world, we basically depend on our middleware team or the backend team to give us uh, the, all the schema-related portions. But with GraphQL, I think uh, the developers get their own freedom. So everyone are, uh, agrees to a schema at first, and basically everyone has the details about the schema. And so using those schema, which is defined uh, uh, early on, we can basically have the develop those uh, applications at our end without depending too much on the middleware team so that it's an easy task for front-end team to develop their front-end work, whereas the middleware team will keep on doing their work using GraphQL APIs. So in current .NET world, I think we have started usage or adoption uh, recently, like at least recent .NET Conf, uh, we saw some talks around using GraphQL with uh, hot chocolate. So everyone might be aware of it. If you're not aware, you can always... We had, we had the guy that I think uh, maintained hot chocolate on the show a little while ago. Yeah, Michael, Michael yeah. Stone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. it was good. Yeah. So I think Sorry, right now, uh, yeah, I think right now that is one of the actively maintained uh, packages or NuGet stuff which we can use and uh, uh, start developing uh, GraphQL applications or APIs in .NET world. So, so, so what made you choose GraphQL for your for your uh, API calls over some of the other options in .NET? Yeah. So as a 
as from the early on days i remember asmx services so whenever i started with asmx services we used to like have this huge uh, add web reference or you just go to a solution and say like right click and say add web reference we used to give the asmx uh, url and it used to generate a big stub for us in the back backend or background and we used to use those to make all the asmx related calls right but then when we started with wcf it's again the same process like you have to have do heavy heavy plumbing code which which the framework used to handle it but still it was a lot of code that used to uh, reside in our applications so having a history about that and when we started uh, adopting rest it still uh, we had to depend on third party packages like either rest sharp or those packages we have to depend to make some rest calls but with graphql i think it's more like an http client right if you you can uh, you can have a http client and you can just make a make a post call or a get call so we might not need any external packages uh, to call to consume those uh, apis so that is at the consumption part so where it is very easier to consume uh, the graph ql uh, apis and it's also somewhere similar to rest apis but the main advantage is from the back end so in the back end you can we can basically like expose this api to different set of clients let's say we can use the same api to a mobile application or we can use the same api for a, a desktop application so in rest we used to have maintain two different endpoints if we have different clients but with graphql i think we have the option to have a single api where the clients will decide what data they need so that a mobile application can ask few details whereas a desktop application might get like 12 to 15 parameters whereas mobile can use just 5 to 6 parameters or fields so that is where if we have different clients uh, graphql might be an option to consider so all these pain points and uh, uh, things which were solved in javascript world i thought like we can use the same learnings uh, in dotnet world and that's how i started to consider exploring graphql more yeah i think it's really amazing how fast graphql has actually been adopted to be honest i think it is pretty i mean you guys know that i'm a fan but like um you know like you, you see a lot of big companies starting to use it now like you know it's made by facebook and like get the github apis in graphql it's just really i really like that separation of um you can develop the, the back end without thinking about how the front end will, will, will consume it you know so is there a lot so, to set up and get graphql working and and define the schema and get everything so that the developers can start using it yeah so graphql is basically schema first so like if all the team decide that okay this is going to be our schema and using those schema we can basically so to set up a graphql api initially we have to do the work of uh, designing the schema so once we come to an agreement that okay this is going to be the schema for this particular apis then it's all we can define those schema in the while we write our apis and uh, once we have set up the resolvers so graphql uses a concept called resolvers so whenever we query the api 
the fields which we use in the query, they each property or the field which we mentioned in the query will have a resolver map to it. And GraphQL will try to, based on the field, it will try to resolve that field. And whatever logic we have defined as part of the resolver, it will try to go and pick those uh, logic or run those logic in the API. So yeah, schema first. And uh, it is uh, it is usually like a difficult process to come up with an agreed schema at first. But, maybe, but it is only for the first time. But... After that, any small changes to schema is basically we'll go and update the schema file. So the client does not need to do any change because if you remember, we all might be using automappers or in the .NET world, or we we depend heavily on automappers to convert the service response into a client-side model and all those stuff. So whenever a new field gets added, we have to change both the service as well as the client to consume the new, new field. So now with GraphQL, we just go and update the schema file so that whenever the client is querying with the new field, it will automatically get it as part of the response. So if it is coming as a JSON response, then in the client, we are just basically going to use those uh, directly. And uh, so the ma- if there are more number of layers where we have mapping conversions, Traditionally, we have to go and touch all those mapping conversion areas to add these new fields. Whereas with GraphQL, I think the touch points will be minimum. It is either going to be the API side where we will add the new new schema field. And in the client, we have to just, whoever the caller is, they have to make sure that they they use the new field. Did you find your schema, like you were saying, that it's kind of difficult to come up with a schema in the beginning? Did you find your schema was pretty close to how your, your database generally looks? I guess you yeah. use the database. Yeah. So in your, so there are uh, there are multiple things to come with the schema. So GraphQL, it's not like we have to use GraphQL only to query our database. Mm. With GraphQL, we can also query like any HTTP resource. Like uh, let's say we are going to have some blob storage or we are going to have some file storage locations, right? So... Initially, so if we are writing a blog article, so for the blog article, we might have published the blog in an URL. So when we store that information, we get the blog ID, the blog description, the blog details, and you need your, you can also get the blog URL. So, and let's say for historical purpose, if this information was stored uh, in a blob as a resource, then we can aggregate all those related fields or GraphQL can be used as an aggregator so that we can connect all those related objects, whether it is a traditional database or whether it is a NoSQL database or any other blob storage. So as as we define what, what will be as part of our schema, then I think GraphQL would be easier to adopt. So that is something that's really nice about GraphQL that you can have any any kind of backend, can right. be NoSQL, it can be relational, it could be blob storage or anything. Correct. Yeah. So uh, we can. So when I read in one of the articles, they mentioned like your backend can be anything which is able to accept a HTTP request. So as long as it can be a, diff, you can also use GraphQL and connect all your APIs. 
for example, you have 10 different REST APIs. Then with GraphQL, we can also call the REST APIs and use GraphQL as an aggregator to like stitch all the schemas together. So in a recent talk, they also explained about schema stitching. So in Twitter also, they do something like schema stitching with uh, using GraphQL. So that is a good feature to consider with GraphQL. What's schema stitching? What is that? Yeah, schema stitching is nothing but, as I told, if you are going to have different uh, sources or different data sources, and each data source, we are going to give some fields or properties. Let's say some details will come from my relational database. Some details will come from my NoSQL database. Some details will come from blob storage, right? So each uh, data source might be giving certain properties or certain fields. And with GraphQL, we can basically stitch all those properties together. So that's how I'm saying like schema stitching. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the Raygun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it grepping through logs is no fun and having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into twitter is also not fun so go check out raygun they are definitely going to help you out there are thousands of customer centric customer focused software companies who use raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers and if you go to raygun and use our link you can get a 14 day free trial so you can go check that out at adventuresin.net.com slash Raygun. So it's like Jung joins? Yes. So uh, I think it is like, so if we come to the relational database world, if I say select star from, so where the star currently is looking at a single table and it will give, give me all the column names. So now that single table is not a single table. We are going to, look at multiple tables, as you told, it's going to be a join between different data sources and uh, bring all them in a single query. Yes. In fact, I think that's kind of one of the motivations of why Facebook um, created GraphQL. I think it's just because they had so many different data sources, um, as you can imagine with Facebook, um, it was just a really good way for them to essentially consolidate and just have one API. You know, Baskar, I... Um you know, talking with Y and his use of GraphQL, right? It, he says it, it's really changed the way he, he looks at the the front end versus the back end. And, and right, he, he can kind of separate the two and, and not not have to, to worry so much about the back end while he's doing his GraphQL. Have you found that it, it changes the way that you develop or, or your your viewpoint on how you're doing your APIs has changed using GraphQL? Yeah, as... So that is one of the advantage when we go with the GraphQL. Like we we have a separation of concern over there. The UI team can start working or consuming with the agreed upon uh, 
uh, schema definitions and the middleware team will work separately or independently developing their APIs. And uh, we can even do our stubbing, right? So until we define the actual implementations, we can always create stub queries so that you can uh, get like pre-filled uh, values. So they might not be the actual production values, but, but your API team can always will be able to generate the documentation of the API. So with GraphQL, you don't need special Swagger implementation to know what are all the methods or to know what are all the fields which are present in the API. GraphQL has that uh, documentation inbuilt. So when you develop an API using uh, GraphQL, through the documentation tab, we can see like, okay, what are all the different queries that are supported by this uh, GraphQL API? And uh, what is the return types? Like, what are all the fields I'm going to get as part of this particular query? So that documentation will really help out the front-end team. So yeah, as uh, I said, both of them will be independent and each can be doing their work as part of the schema, which is already decided. So if there is a change, the API team can always go and update the schema file so that it is reflected in the documentation and the front-end team can obviously do the required stubbing to do their development. Just curiously, what, what are you using as your front-end client? Are you using like Apollo or something? So right now, I basically test my GraphQL APIs. As I told, I have not done any production-related work till now, but all these were basically me trying to explore how I can bring GraphQL into .NET side so that I have the knowledge uh, what I need if I want to advocate at my work to tell that, okay, can we try GraphQL? So that's how all, all of these started. So, mm. yeah. So at least in the JavaScript world, I think we have huge acceptance for Apollo and uh, there are other clients as well. Here, I basically use Postman to test my GraphQL APIs. So Postman mm. recently added, uh, you can test GraphQL APIs with Postman. So as long as we have the API, I, I generally go into Postman and try to test whether my API is giving me proper results or not. And there are some plugins which we can use so that you can basically use your browser directly without even having a Postman so that mm. you can see what is the schema and what is what are all the fields. So I suppose it is GraphIQL. So if while we develop the API, if we bring in GraphIQL, it will expose the API-related schema and the fields and properties, which we can see it through the browser itself instead of accessing it through Postman. So how is optimization done? Is that when you define the schema or is it in your queries or both? So, yeah. So optimizations, I think uh, it's mainly on the resolvers. So when we define the schema, if we, if we make sure that we don't nest our queries too much, like as long as we create nested, if we keep on uh, create, creating the nested parameters, then I think we will have, we usually have some performance uh, issues over there. As long as the nest levels increase, there will be performance issues. 
So that's where I think uh, the general recommendation is to try batches. So you can you can fire queries to your GraphQL API in batch instead of sending them at once and get the response from the APIs. So batching is an option which we can do for optimizations. You have to use the the data loader pattern, right, to do the, the batching. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that, like, I feel like GraphQL kind of doesn't fit that well with a relational database because there is actually a lot of a lot of that stuff. If you if you access one a child and then a parent and then a bunch of children, um, if any of you don't use that data loader pattern, then you basically um, hit the database every time to get every single right. object. So right, yeah, that's that's what. So as as the as someone says. We, we will face N plus one issues with GraphQL. So as the number of nesting increases, the number of hits to database increase. So that's yeah. a, that's where having a cache or something built before hitting the API, that might be an option so that we will not hit the database for every child for every child fields. So, so optimization wise, the resolvers are an area where we can basically, let's say, if instead of resolving for each and every field, we can maybe combine two to, two to three fields or four fields if we need. But uh, I have not tried that option. But as you told, like the data loader and batch operations, they can be done. So you've chosen to use GraphQL, right? Because it, it solves a need or a problem you were seeing with how you were handling your, your APIs depending on different clients. Are there any other pain points you've run into with GraphQL beyond uh, what you and Y just talked about with uh, the batching versus nesting? Yeah, apart from, I, I don't think there are any other issues which I have encountered with GraphQL. So one thing is we have to be cautious with the nesting issues. So that is, that is the primary uh, stuff which we need to decide uh, or always be ready to ta- handle when we are uh, trying to use GraphQL for an enterprise application. So one thing you put in your show notes was um, you wanted to talk about Signal R versus uh, GraphQL subscriptions. I've actually, I actually haven't actually used subscriptions, actually. Can you tell me what that experience has been like? Yeah. So using Signal R, we, let's say, uh, we want to get some notification to our clients whenever there is a change to a particular database property. So for example, let's say we have a books table and uh, we want to be notified whenever the book is available for sale, right? So with uh, norm, we can we can do this different ways. So we can use normal SQL Server and uh, SignalR. So with SignalR, we can basically like monitor the database and when the database will emit a change event, we can use SignalR to send the uh, notifications to the clients which are connected or which are currently subscribed to SignalR. SignalR. So there are many plumbing activities that we need to do to bring this operation or to build this entire operation. Whereas with GraphQL, it's like the client is basically going to call a single URL with a subscription. So it will say like, okay, I'm subscribing to this particular subscription and uh, you let me know whenever you have something changes on that particular data model. So 
the plumbing portion to implement these activities or the notification mechanism is very easier with GraphQL. It's not that we cannot do with SignalR. We can do it using SignalR as well, but we have to do the connections between the the data model and we have to make sure the data store will emit a change event. So all these uh, stuff are basically taken care of within GraphQL itself. So in GraphQL, when we give the schema and once we modify the schema or the collection, and in the collection, if you are adding any new field, and if there is an active subscription on that particular collection, the clients will be notified that, okay, there is something activity that is happening on this particular uh, observable or collection. So I'm, I want to let you know. So that's how in GraphQL we do the subscriptions. So I think that is pretty much easier to handle with GraphQL, whereas with SignalR and SQL, uh, it is the responsibility on the development team to basically add some additional coding to do that. But to be clear, I think they both they both use WebSockets underneath to yeah yeah to communicate back to the client. So Correct. You're just saying the setup um, on the server side. Um, yeah, yeah, is easier. Correct. Okay. Are there things that GraphQL is not good for that you wouldn't want to choose it, and you and you'd want to stick with a traditional relational database or NoSQL? Yeah. So if we if we have a situation where we are not going to be using multiple clients, let's say if we don't have a web or we we don't have a mobile app or we don't have any other different clients, I don't think there is a need to go to GraphQL. So GraphQL advantage is basically when you have different clients and if you want to have an API to provide information to different clients that's where graphql will come into picture if there is if there are no different clients and let's say if you are we are going to have only a website and we are basically just trying to deal with a normal database i don't think uh, they would need graphql for their applications to be honest though i i actually think even then i would probably still prefer graphql just, just, this is just my opinion. Just because it's, it makes the, I find it makes the application a lot less chatty. Because you know, like, let's say you have a, you, you do just use um, REST endpoints. You know, you, you're, I'm fine that you're usually, you know, you call something, you get something back, and then you got to call something else based on the result of that and things like that. With right. GraphQL, you're essentially doing it with basically one call. You know, so I think for me, where the disadvantage lies is probably just the fact that GraphQL is is different to to REST APIs and um. You might just have developers who aren't familiar with working in that kind of new way of working. So there's that cost in the beginning um, of getting people familiar with a new technology. Yes. So, yeah, considering uh, GraphQL, the main thing is the resolvers. So if we get up, get our resolvers set up well, I think mm. graph implementing GraphQL is uh, an easier option. Mm. All right. Any other questions? Is there anything that we haven't uh, talked about? Beskar, that you'd like to, to let us know about? Yeah, I think we, we covered uh, most of the items about GraphQL. So if anyone wants to try out GraphQL, they can always go and check Hot Chocolate to see like uh, how they can use GraphQL within .NET space. And I think he's actively maintaining uh, the project and uh, give it a try. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's what we can do. Give it a try. 
Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. All right. So, great. Thanks. Thanks, Baskar. Let's move on to picks. So, uh, Caleb, you want to go first? Sure. So, my pick today is a game. It's not a Switch game, but it actually just, as we're recording this, just went into open beta. It's called Magic Legends. And if you've played Magic the Gathering any time in the past 20 years, it's it's a, an ARPG based off of that. It's got some some rough edges, and it is pay to win because Magic is pay to win, right? You have to buy the cards to to get better cards to win. But uh, it's an interesting take, and uh, I've been enjoying it. I've played a couple hours, and it's uh, you know it's worth worth a look. It's free, so well free to get in and then pay to win once you're in. <laughs> <laughs> so, so do you find that enjoyable if it's pay to win? Like no, I do not. Right if if I'm playing a game that's free to play, but it's obvious pay to win, I go into it with that knowledge, right? And mm-hmm. and I'm not I'm not gonna be a whale. I'm not gonna throw, you know, ten dollars, much less a hundred dollars at this game to try to win. I'm just I'm gonna enjoy the pieces that are available to everybody. And once I get bored, I'll move on to something else, right? Mm. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I used to play a game that was like that, pay to play to win or pay to win and so I wrote a bot <laughs> to to mine all sorts of <laughs> all sorts of currency for me, so that I I could just keep up with the guys that were spending hundreds of dollars, things like that. <laughs> Should have sold the bot to those guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So yeah, my my pick uh, this week is also a, an ARPG, but it's it's not pay to win. You can pay for things, but most of the payment is towards you know like visuals and extra things in your like your stash and things like that so i don't know if you heard about uh path of exile i just learned about it but it, it's been around for a, quite a while i guess it's but, very uh, popular yeah very popular I, yeah. I, I know a lot of people that rank it right up there with diablo 3 if not better in some cases yeah, so, yeah. well i'm i'm just kind of they're finishing up a, a season of diablo 3 right now and mm-hmm. i think i'm gonna move on to path of exile it's almost to me it's what kind of diablo 3 kind of could have been Instead, you know, between Diablo two and Diablo three, I think Path of Exile is kind of a better you know path to go from Diablo two into this you know world of ARPG. So it's nice; it's got great graphics. The skill tree is is huge, so there is a lot of complexity to go along with the game when you first get started and to understand it. But you know, it's free and it's fun. You can play with your friends. And, all that kind of stuff. And it looks like they are working on a Path of Exile 2, but that might be a, a year or two before it's actually out. But they've got some preview videos. So I like it. All right. Cool. Why? What's your pick? Okay. So in this kind of COVID world, I find that I'm kind of working from home a lot more. And I was actually talking to my colleague about my my setup at home. And I actually think it's really, really important to actually have, have really good work set, set up. So uh, my pick this week is a, a Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt dock, basically that I've got um, that I've got at home. Um, it's just I think it's a Dell one. I won't put a model number. I'll put a link in there. But but yes, yeah, it's, it's just really cool. I've got like two two K monitors and all this other stuff hooked up to my computer. And essentially, all I need to do is just plug plug it in, into the USB C outlet on my piece on my on my desktop, and it becomes a 
so on my laptop and it becomes a desktop. So yes, yeah, it's, it's just it's just a really good and it charges my laptop up as well. So um, I think for anyone that's working from home, I would definitely recommend some sort of Thunderbolt free dock. So cool. All right, Baskar, what what do you have your for your pick? Yeah, so I see most of you sharing games and uh, other stuff, but my pick is basically a book. It's uh, Fundamentals of Software Architecture by uh, Neil Ford and uh, uh, Mark Richards. So it is uh, basically has very good information about if anyone wants to brush up their architecture skills or if they want to uh, get their architecture skills refined with the current technology space, I think that is a good one to read. So that's my pick. Nice. All right. Mm. Baskar, if, if our listeners have any questions and they want to reach out and get in touch with you, how could they how could they do that? Yeah, they can always reach out to me on Twitter. I'm active on Twitter and uh, I'm welcome to answer any questions through Twitter. So on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? Yeah, it's Baskar MIB. Yep. All right. Baskar, men in black? No. Uh, it was originally men in blue because, oh, uh, in- yeah, right. It was uh, a theme about my college department. So our department guys used to had had this word as men in blue. So we thought, so from there, since we are part of the department, and I created this handle or the email address when I was in my college. So that's how MIB got added. So, yeah. All right, nice, nice. And if our listeners want to reach out with to uh, the show, we'd love to hear your feedback and get in touch with me. On Twitter, I am at .NET Superhero. And Caleb, you are? At Caleb Wells Codes. Come find Very us. Good. Hit us up. All right. Someday we'll make Y a little more, uh, you know, social. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too lazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Give me a link, Jim. <laughs> there you go. All yeah. right. Thanks, Baskar. And we'll catch everybody yeah, on the next both. episode of Adventures in .NET. Thanks Bye, y'all. for having me. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.